in the holy name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Embedded in this brief passage from Mark's Gospel, a startlingly short two verses, is a story of great pathos and power, a story of the Lord's relentless love for us, and a teaching about discipleship in this our world of shadow and of light. We are brought by St. Mark into the region now stamped by the transfiguration and the passion, by the glorious light radiating from Mount Tabor, but also the deep shadow of the cross that falls across all things. We stand now in the world determined by these things, by the glory of Christ that fades not away, and by his cross that defines the end toward which he moves, solemnly, relentlessly, victoriously. This light and this shadow, they fill the landscape on which we stand this day. Into this region is brought a brief report. Someone is casting out demons in the Lord's name who does not belong to us. It is a scene that has unfolded some far distance from the main action, off stage to us, we might say, and far from the concentrated life that holds when Jesus is present with the Twelve. Already these disciples have found themselves unable to drive out demons without their master's presence. Their spiritual power seems to ebb when left solitary and separate from their teacher's light. But their authority, it seems, remains. When they happen upon this exorcist, driving out illness without a membership card, <laughs> without discipleship or loyalty, the Twelve forbid him. Perhaps they said to themselves, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Or perhaps they thought such proud defense of their loyalty to the Master would make them the greatest. We know from this chapter in the Gospel that already in scant hours after the Transfiguration, the disciples argued over their stature, their greatness in the coming kingdom. Or perhaps it had something to do with John, the disciple. The evangelist is careful to tell us that it was John, after all, who reported this story to Jesus. Lord, we found someone casting out demons in your name. 
This John, who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and James to witness the fulfillment of all Israel's hope in this Messiah, made glorious before them. Could John not bear to have a cure performed by one who did not believe in Jesus? Or should we hear something of an echo of another mountain, long in Israel's past, where the prophet Moses received the words, only to hear rising up from the plains the sound of reveling in the camp. Aaron, Moses' disciple, revealing the golden calf that just sprang up out of molten treasure. Perhaps all these reasons and excuses and disobediences and fears lie behind the decision made by the disciples to forbid this cure. Perhaps. But we should know. For are we not the ones terrified by our own cultic powers, jealous of our prayers and rituals and rites, eager to defend these prayers, these books, these sacred acts against all defilement, all foreign use, all magic and cheap showmanship. Yes, we stand with the apostles in this way, too. We are eager to forbid others to our rights, eager to fence in the holy and keep the profane far away. They are unclean. We will not have that sort at our altars, at our prayer desks, at our communion rail. Leprosy, we must say, does not belong only to ancient times and to ancient fears. But these are not the only ways we mirror the Twelve and their authority over these rites. Not only outsiders, but we fear the insiders, too, should be forbidden holy acts by the unholy. For are we not the ones who have no idea, really, who should be allowed to say these words, do these gestures and acts? Who can stand truly? before the altar of Almighty God. Are we not the ones who know, deep down, that in truth, we are the ones who should never be allowed to say and do these holy things? It is the rare Christian who has not felt herself altogether wrong as she says the litanies and prayers, a cheap pretender to the powers of pulpit and altar and prayer book. Have we not all felt from time to time, perhaps from year to year, that we are casting out demons by the Lord's name, yet do not belong to him? 
At times it can seem, can it not, that we have learned the words to say, the gestures to make, the names to evoke, the powerful incantations to take on our lips, to learn all these forms by heart, yet feel ourselves still far from the Lord's service, our hearts still alien from Christ's call and command. Insiders, we seem to ourselves like outsiders, especially to ourselves. Will there not be a day, we wonder, when a true disciple stumbles across us, mouthing our pieties and forbid us these words? It is a deep struggle over vocation to know that we at times forbid others their place in God's holy family, and at times we fear that we are the ones that should be driven out. We must feel close to the disciple John at times like these. But our Lord is not done with the disciple John, nor with us about this small event. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Forbid him not. For one who does mighty works in my name will no longer be able to say ill of me. Those who are not against us are for us. Really astonishing words. Jesus, who looks upon the heart, has seen something we are blind to. He knows the desperation that lies behind an exorcism, the fear and hope that linger underneath every shallow prayer, the depth that shadows every act of ritualism and magic. He knows all this. For what brings someone to the brink of magic, the toss of the dice, to try one more right, however silly, take up one more amulet, visit one more clinic, to swallow one more potion, however fanciful or fearful, to try something, anything, to make this demon fly away. It does not take Marcel Mauss to tell us that religion and magic are not such strangers to one another. Every act of spiritual life springs from the desperate hope that heavenly help can be found when no earthly power will do. Jesus sees all that. He knows that we will be driven to him, even when we know him not. We will call on him, even when all we know is his bare name, a simple two syllables against the forces that terrify 
and hem us in. And he knows, too, that despite all our pride, despite all our folly and imposture, he can make use of these rituals. He can come to us even when we are still far away, lost in our rebellion and blindness, simply to take his name on our lips, to call upon him, even when our hearts are far from him, is to stand in the place where Jesus comes, where he calls and enters in and turns our hearts. Even when we are apart, we can be for him, for he is the one who is for us. He will lay claim upon us, upon our wayward hearts. Even when we fail and fail again, his power, the merciful grace of his name, will break our pride, calm our terrors, turn us into his authentic and true followers, he alone can do this, and he does do it. The Christian life, then, is not one of forbidding. It is rather one of welcome, of joyful trust, and of repentance, too. Let us turn to this table now, confident, that though our words or our hearts may be empty, our acts dull or forced, he will work in them, call us to himself, be our bread of life, and he will fill us to the very brim. And for this true gift, come down from heaven, we say, Thanks be to God. Amen.